This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warno Deschillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues based on the principles of the Baha'i faith. Today I'm playing a pre-recorded interview with Mr. Ash Hartwell, a Baha'i from Amherst, Massachusetts. Ash has traveled to many countries in Africa, including Egypt, Ghana, Uganda, and Malawi, applying learning principles to classroom, school, and community programs. Since he returned to the U.S. after working 25 years in Africa, he has served as an education advisor to USAID's Africa Bureau, as well as to UNICEF, CARE, and the World Bank. He has served on the Board of Trustees of the 21st Century Learning Initiative, a transnational program to synthesize the best of research and development into the nature of human learning and implications for education, work, and the development of communities worldwide. In 2002, he joined the faculty at the Center for International Education at the University of Massachusetts, where he focuses on learning in post-conflict situations, educational policy and planning, and alternative forms of education. He also continues as an advisor on education systems for the Global Learning Group of the Education Development Center, Inc. The stories that Ash has to tell are too many to capture in one hour. So I've segmented our interview into three parts. In the first segment, Ash described his experiences as one of the first Peace Corps volunteers and his adventures in Ethiopia for that assignment. Ash concluded that segment by describing his experience as an educator in the Washington, D.C. school system and the start of the Upward Bound organization. In this segment, Ash continues his journey by describing how he ended up in Amherst, Massachusetts. I was... Trish and I were married. Mm-hmm. We we met at Howard Graduate School. Actually, we were easily. I, I saw her after meeting her in Ethiopia. We had been out of touch, and I saw her in a in a registration line at Howard University, and she wow. was easy to pick out because we were, there weren't very many white folks <laughs> in the <laughs> registration <laughs> lines. So she she was taking a, uh, courses in Afro American literature too. So mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, after we were married, uh, we had a we had a kind of a choice to make. I uh, I had an offer of going back and working for something called Teachers in East Africa, and I really loved that opportunity. Or uh, going to graduate school. And at about the time we were trying to make a decision, which in the true '60s fashion we used the I Ching. Yeah, familiar. <laughs> we actually found yarrow stalks and went through the whole thing. And we came up with a very, as you often do in the I Ching, a kind of a ambiguous uh, kind of, it's the book of changes after all, and it's always about transition, so you're not quite sure <laughs> where you're coming from and where you're going in terms of what it says. But it says that if you want to, if you want to achieve change in the world, uh, you have to have authority. What in the world did that mean? Um, I have an idea now, but <laughs> anyway. Uh, about that time, I got a call from a friend from who had known me in Peace Corps and then in the Cardoso Project, 
school was at a place in Amherst, Massachusetts at the university saying that the School of Education was being reorganized and there was a dean who had just come on named Dwight Allen mm. who uh, was wanted to interview me and uh, would I come up for two days to be a consultant hmm. uh, about a graduate program. I thought, hey, to be a consultant? Why not? You know, how bad can that be? And so I met Dwight Allen, who um, was... I, how can I put it? He was just my kind of person. He mm. was so open and mm. so enthusiastic about a new vision for how you'd create education and that it was possible to transform schools of education. Uh, meanwhile, sharing with me uh, cases of tab that he downed at a high rate and uh, enormously engaging and imaginative. And I basically came away from that, came back to Trish and said, I've met the most incredible person and mm. this most incredible opportunity. He said, come to graduate school and design your own. Sounds right to me. I did when I was in primary school. Why shouldn't I be able to do it now? And, uh, and there are a group of people who all want to do international education, whatever that might be. What about... And so we decided to come up here and uh, had a fabulous four years. Mm. And uh, at the end of that, um, and did a lot of the things that we wanted to, um, mm. really. Um, uh, but at the end of that, I had an offer from Makari University in Uganda. <laughs> well, I've been looking for something like this to uh, to go and uh, and uh, and teach at the university there. Um, while we were here, uh, we met more of these people called Baha'is mm. and uh, there was a graduate seminar that I was in and it was about how again it was a it was a time of optimism a time you could think that you know independence was coming in Africa uh, had come in many cases um, you could think of a new age uh, in terms of the politics, the post-colonial, the whole um, education. And we're sitting around a table looking at the likelihood of being able to establish a really um, major innovations and reforms in the education system. And two of the people around the table seemed to me particularly thoughtful in the kinds of critical questions they asked about power relationships, about the degree to which uh, the po post-colonial European and American world were ready to do uh, take certain actions. Mm -hmm. And after the class, uh, and I had been a, I had been very, uh, as you can guess, I I talk easily, so I, I I talk a lot. You know, sometimes I don't always, but <laughs> anyway, I was, I had been talking a lot about all the possibilities in the class. And these two guys came up to me. One was Afro-American and the other was Bob, Wa um, Bob Walker who had a beard down to his chest and seemed to be kind of a very wise person. Mm -hmm. And they said to me, do you really think that with the liberal agendas and the, and the, and the way things are going that these kinds of changes are going to come? And in fact, the Afro-American, he looked at me so intensely at this, I kind of withered, and I said, uh, you know, 
in my heart of hearts, I really try to make myself believe this will happen, but I don't. I, I, I think something else is... And they both said, you know, they said, well, have you heard about the Baha'i faith? Hmm. I said, what does that have to do with it? <laughs> and uh, I began to go to a series of firesides. By the way, um, it was Bob Walker who later went to Brazil and uh, Robert Henderson who Mm. Uh, is now the Secretary, Secretary of, of the of National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is yeah. here in the and United States. was in graduate school at that time, along mm -hmm. with Billy Roberts, and mm -hmm. and they actually <coughs> came and lived in, in Belchertown, where we were living for a while. Mm. But um, a whole series of fires and so began to make me realize that the, that the fundamental premise of improvement of the well-being in, in the world um, has to be based on a, a sense of unity which goes beyond just political or economic um, concern or tolerance, but goes to the acceptance of the fundamental unity of our being, that we really are one family. We are, mm. we are all connected uh, organically, and that, um, that without that, the various measures that people make are um, are you know either philanthropic do-goodism, which um, is kind of a handout and doesn't deal with the structural issues, or is a um, isn't fully sincere because if we are taking more out than we are putting in in a mm. fundamental way, we're not going to solve the problems, uh, the structural problems of power and, and the economy in the world. And it's something much more radical that's needed. As a, another good friend who teaches history and uh, Af African studies in, at Mount Holyoke, Kali Hansen, says we have to develop an economy of love. And what she means by that is that economics is a study, among other things, of transactions, of relationships. And it's a re we think of it in ter of material terms, but there's also social conventions that are built into that. And her observation is that much of economics that grew out of the experience of what we very loosely call the colonial period became an economics of exploitation and extraction. Um, and that we haven't gotten over that, however we would like to believe we have. And until... Because in many societies we have the economics of sacrifice. The best, the, the, the person who is the most highly respected and the most powerful in a community is the one who gives the most, not the one who takes the most. Uh, <laughs> the, the potlatch community, these are called, uh, that's the term that is given to communities and cultures where um, they value giving more than accumulation. And what's it called again? Potlatch. And it, it's actually an Indian word uh, from the Northwest, um, from the Northwest Indian groups, which do this. And but um, during the period of colonialism, and, and and to some extent even in the feudal European traditions, the notion of accumulation and therefore exploitation become the primary value of human relationships. Not the primary, but a very important one, certainly in economics. And uh, what Holly points out is that. When we get to the point where we recognize that the people involved in transactions are fully human and are part of our family, 
then we will look towards material exchanges that are based on love rather than accumulation or and, and I find that mm. very, very insightful as a way of thinking about what the world needs to move towards. So mm. anyway, mm -hmm. that's a <laughs> okay. So oh, uh, yeah, so it. let's move on to um, um, you got your doctorate. Got my doctorate, and you ran into the Baha'is. It ran into the started to make sense to you, right? And decided to go to Uganda. Okay. After consultations, that said Uganda would be a good place. If uh, to to go uh, as a Baha'i now Baha'is don't don't go as missionaries. We're not. Uh, we go to when we go to a country. We um, we we look to see how we can be of service, uh, particularly professionally. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so and and we 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 don't depend on anybody's support for us. We we have to support ourselves, and we do it through the work we do. So, anyway, the offer to go to Macquarie University seemed like a, like a good one. And Uganda was a place both Trish and I had visited. And uh, the, uh, the, the chance of teaching at the university and working there seemed to be. Mm -hmm. really and how long you were there? Uh, for eight years. Mm -hmm. Now, as we were stepping on the airplane to go, my Trish's brother, Peter... Uh, um, was late to see us off and came just as we were getting ready to go onto the plane and uh, said uh, Uganda um, <laughs> is uh, is undergoing a serious problem here Idi Amin has taken over and he has just, just announced that he's kicking out all of the Indians and this is causing a lot of news and turmoil that broke the day we got on the airplane oh boy so we arrived in Uganda to uh, to a time of huge turmoil, um, and where Idi Amin was. He was was he anti-Western? Uh, yeah. Well, he was anti anybody who posed any sort of a threat or barrier to his own uh, ends, which were to control the country. Absolutely. Um. A little history, because Idi Amin, like other characters who make their way onto the world scene as uh, madmen, tyrants, and so forth, um, it's never so simple. Mm. Um, Idi Amin's story goes back to uh, the end, at the closing years of the 19th century, actually. Really? <laughs> yes, when? Uh... Catholics and Episcopalians were, as missionaries, had established themselves in Kampala um, under the, uh, with the permission of the, of the, of the king of the, of the Baganda people, who was known as the Kabaka. And uh, they had started uh, some skirmishes, first verbal and then um, semi-military and were shooting at each other a little war starting up and uh, there was an adventurer there are a lot of you know these Victorian adventurers mm -hmm. Burton and this guy was Lugard okay Lugard mm -hmm. and he he 
went to Parliament and said this would be really a disaster if the two religious communities got into serious warfare, splitting up the kingdom, and this wouldn't be good for us. Wouldn't be good for the faith. Wouldn't be good for. Um, I propose to go and help settle this. Can you give me some funds to do that? And the Parliament agreed with that. They saw themselves as uh, it was the white man's burden time. Really, mm-hmm. I mean, it was the idea that you know the the the, the empire really had a responsibility for uh, uh, preventing this kind of thing happening, especially when it was being done by Europeans. <laughs> so. So they sent Lugard off. He arrived in Kampala, and sure enough, uh, there was gunfights, and, and there were things going on. And he um, he then wrote to get a little more money, which he did get, to figure a way of, 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 of putting this this pipe down. And he got enough money. He went up to the southern Sudan, the, the, the place that, where there has been so much trouble, <laughs> the southern Sudan, near the area of what is now Juba. Um, and he... There, there was an Englishman who had converted to Islam, um, Pasha, uh, Ishmael Pasha, his name was, which is a kind of a title, but it was, he, and he had a bit of a kingdom that he formed, and he had trained troops. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lugard took about 2,000 of the southern Sudanese troops and marched down with them back to Kampala, and needless to say, uh, put down, put, <laughs> put this thing down, um, not only that, built a big fort for the Kabaka, uh, built a big fort which then became the... Um, he didn't send these men back, but they became a permanent garrison uh, for the Kabaka, and they signed an agreement called a protectorate, which would mean that UK would guarantee uh, right, um, uh, security for the Kabaka and the, and, and the kingdom, uh, in exchange for uh, full access and trade. Um, and that became the protectorate. The southern Sudanese, with their own language, they were basically mercenaries. Um, and they they stayed on, and their, the next generation stayed on. They formed a community of its own language, of its own, which was a mercenary community, which formed the core of the Ugandan army at independence. Of course it Mm. did. Um, Other northerners had joined this, and it was a northern army. It was an army of people who didn't, who who had little regard for and didn't speak the language of the the people. people, And um, saw themselves as, by then you couldn't say mercenaries, but certainly they saw themselves as like an occupying force mm. which meant that any politician had to be on their side and any politician that stepped out of line a little or didn't um, go along with them they could get rid of and they did and that's what happened when Oboti, uh the first president of, of the country became a little bit of a tyrant he was co- totally depending on them and finally said we don't need him and Amin was then the the virtual head of the of of, of this group, of, of the army, mm-hmm. and, and that's what happened. So he didn't come out of nowhere, and his all the behavior and so forth actually reflected the the this group of um, of, of of third generation Southern Sudanese who essentially looted the country mm-hmm. and then went back to Southern Sudan where. 
they have continued to fuel the ongoing uh, unrest and problems there. Mm. Mm. So that that's important to understand because yeah. it shows why there's continued problems in northern Uganda, southern Sudan, and so on. It's this mm. uh, started mm. way back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so you so you I walk off the plane into Uganda, right? And yeah, and are picked up by one of the Baha'is who met <coughs> us at the airport. Luckily, and we had we had three kids by then. We adopted twins at birth, um, and uh, so we had three kids all below the age of well, three and mm. a three-year-old and and twins of <laughs> four and a half. Was she that old? It was 1968, <coughs> 19, yeah. Okay, correction. <laughs> <laughs> they seem pretty young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you had a young family. Young family. Uh, we we uh, were given a house quite a nice house by the university um, but our guard and there were other houses like it around us it was a, a ways from the university and, mm. uh, and it was an area where there were some other university people but we were told that it was a uh, not very secure area there were mm -hmm. robberies and, and our guard showed up with a bow and arrow uh, and didn't look like he could shoot anything very well um Shortly after we got into our house, we noticed a button by the bed and thought, "Was that for the overhead lights or what is it for?" And we we put on the button, we pushed the button, nothing happened. And about a minute later, we kind of what was that for? And about a minute later, we start hearing this siren, and it sounds like it's some somewhere else, but it's actually a siren that we turned on. <laughs> <laughs> and it got so loud before we realized that was us. <laughs> uh, it didn't. It, no, nobody responded. <laughs> but it turned out that this was a uh, not a safe area, and so we were then moved into an apartment on the university. Mm. Um, we had a we had a hard time. Our first one of our first trips out to to visit uh, a community and and friends. Um, for the Baha'i community, we were going to Tararo, which was a drive about two and a half mi um, hours uh, east um, at a place called Tararo on the border with Kenya. And as we were going off on this trip, before we got out of Kampala, we were stopped by a set of soldiers mm. who told us that we shouldn't move uh, and that we should just turn around and go back. That there something had happened and that uh, we weren't allowed to go forward and we tried to beg and plead and they wouldn't let us go so we started but oh i we we asked them well is there any place we could go to get permission and they said yeah you could go up to this lugar uh, prison which is a mile away or so and we were very naive and didn't realize that this was a high security prison where they put political as well i mean it was a not a place you go and visit. <laughs> and, uh, so we drive up to 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 see if we could get permission, and we're surrounded by really angry-looking guys with semi-automatics and guns, and they shout, "Get out!" And they're speaking Swahili, which I didn't speak. Then they actually put me on the ground, flat. 
gun on my head, and our kids are dancing around on the hot. It, it was they were, it was hot pavement, and they were saying, you know, what what's happening to dad, and you know, don't. And finally, I got across that I needed to speak to the commandant, the, the the senior person who came out and did speak English, and I explained to him, I, you know, I'm at the university, I was on an innocent trip, and I was told to come here to get permission. How about it? Didn't look very likely, and he just kind of, oh, you know, one of these really stupid mazungus. <laughs> go home. <laughs> Don't pass go. Don't <laughs> go home. <laughs> so we went home. It turned out that um, this was all because there had been a uh, an invasion into the southern part of the country by uh, um, a combination of Rwandese and Ugandan exiles mm. so who were trying to come in. Yeah. 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 Yes. Oh. Um, All right. So you went back to the university. So, yeah, um, actually, we were just thinking about, so what kind of response to what does one have to this? Being, mm. you know, um, actually boots on my back, mm. a, a rifle at the head, mm. uh, Amin's regime clearly out of control, mm. things starting to deteriorate. Um, we, uh, you know, our family, and my family, and Trish and I, uh, consulted at some length and said, yeah, this is where we ought to be. Mm. We're not going to be able to get out around the country. But, you know, we we felt that there were very few Europeans who wanted to stay around then. Mm. And we wanted to stay around because we wanted to we wanted to kind of demonstrate that we recognize in the world that there are these horrors. But, but as a Baha'i, you know that in the in the long run, the 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 sense that everybody here, ha- even those who are perpetrators, mm. are human beings who have a soul, who have a spirit, who who are to be recognized. This world is not an easy one that we live in, and there's no reason to escape because there may be some personal danger. The mm. mm-hmm. um, fact is, the the fear of personal hurt never really was very prominent, mm-hmm. even even during these times. Mm-hmm. Um, Trish turned out to be the the one who saved us from a lot of grief <laughs> in Uganda. We were... Um, I couldn't survive on the university salary, by the way. Uh, inflation was about 250%, and I was being paid in local currency. Mm. Everybody was having trouble. Ugandans had farms often to go to to help. I didn't. Um, and I was offered a position with the United Nations... Uh, that grew out of some of the research I was doing with the university about a rural education program to become an advisor of the planning department of the Ministry of Education. And I'd been doing work with them, looking at how this particular program could be expanded. It was a program that that integrated the, um, the agriculture and the um, sociology of local communities into teacher training. Uh, and made the university somewhat service-oriented, mm. uh, outreach programs into the communities, mm. and then spread that out to schools and made that a part of the curriculum. Mm. And that was going very well, but for a variety of reasons. But, but uh, so this offer, after two years, made it possible for us to stay on because I think economically we were just... We, 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 <laughs> we, did, we, we started out making something like... Uh, what would be the equivalent of about nine hundred dollars a month, and after two years, it was worth about two hundred and fifty. Mm. So, you know, it was really getting tough. Yeah. Um, 
Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that that was a that was a decision to m- that was made. But mm-hmm. um, it was also that um, we had a very a vibrant a very vibrant Baha'i community and UN community, and there was overlap between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, Uganda is one of the countries where uh, the Baha'is um, worldwide have contributed to have what is called a house of worship. And the house of worship um, is, uh, it has nine entrances, each representing a, a faith tradition, and uh, uh, is a place where people from all faiths are invited to come for prayer. It has no sermons in it. It is just for prayer and meditation. Mm-hmm. And it is an absolutely stunning building. It's seen, You can view it from Kampala up on a hill called Kakaya, about eight miles out of town. Um, and it has absolutely stunning gardens, rays of bougainvillea and and lovely tropical plants uh, radiated, radiating out of from each of the uh, doorways. And uh, the, the, the community in Uganda itself of Baha'is was very dedicated, wonderful group. One of my best friends, Enoch Olinga, uh, not you know, Inaso Piero, was... Um, re-entered the university at the age of 68 and oh finished his degree at the age of 72. <laughs> he had been a teacher. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, we had also um, <coughs> the incredible um, opportunity of having um, Enoch Olinga, who is, called, is one of the people within the Baha'i faith worldwide who is appointed to be uh, a hand of the cause, which is a which is a special... Um, a title for those who are absolutely dedicated uh, champions of, of the faith. And mm. Enoch Olinga had been one of the first people to, uh, from Africa to move to Pioneer and to live mm. in another country. He went to Cameroon and then later was um, appointed by um, uh, Shoghi Effendi, the guardian of the faith, as, a, as the hand of the cause. And mm-hmm. Enoch was... Uh, when when he walked into a room, you know, people when they walk into a room, you kind of glance at them and you say, um, you have a judgment. Right. There's a new book out by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell called Blink. I highly recommend it. Okay. It shows how we make immediate judgments about all kinds of things on our very almost instantaneous impression. Well, Enoch Alinga, when he walked into a room, what happened? Joy. Mm. Was the response he? He just radiated this kind of, whoa, uh, just this this personality that was so in love with the world and everybody in it that it just radiated. He he mm. radiated joy and he made everybody feel good. So <laughs> um, he <coughs> he he um, he he was in Uganda and stayed there during this period mm. and uh, gatherings at his house and. Uh, times with his family were just so so special mm. because he well, you know whatever whatever horrors were taking place and there were horrors taking place um, the the dark side of, of the world uh, the dark forces it were balanced by not balanced but kind of overcome by the sense that you know there are ways that we as human beings are, are, are able to rise to, to transcend this and it's going to happen uh, we, you know, have this deep sense that that's going to work. Mm. Um, 
And, uh, so you felt it from him. And we felt that so yeah. strongly. Yeah. Um, incidentally, the uh, even during much of the Amin period, although the faith was formally banned, uh, the house of worship maintained it to, uh, itself as a symbol of kind of hope for the country. And from time to time it would be, you know, you'd see it in the national newspaper even when the faith itself was banned. And why was it banned? It was banned because... Um, during the time of Amin, um, radical Islamic movements from Saudi Arabia and Libya saw Ethio uh, Uganda as an opportunity to gain a much stronger foothold in Uganda. Mm -hmm. And uh, because Amin was ostensibly um, a Muslim, although he violated most of the tenets of Islam, um, he, uh, at one time, uh, when I was still at the university, he invited uh, Muhammad uh, Gaddafi down to uh, establish... Muammar Gaddafi, yeah, the leader the of... The leader of Libya. Libya. Yeah. Um, well known for its support of terrorist movements and so forth. He w invited uh, <laughs> Gaddafi down to uh, officially open a faculty of revolution. And uh, Gaddafi did come down. Um, and somehow people who had briefed him hadn't let him know that 90% of the country in Uganda was strong uh, Christians um, and that about 10% were, were Islam. And he gave the opening address for this faculty of revolution at the university and a lot of people came out of curiosity and he supposed they were all true believers. And the talk began at about 4.30 or so um, and was in Arabic and was translated and uh, within an hour, as the as the sun was going down, people just started fading away because Gaddafi was making the case that Christianity had really ruined Africa, and Islam was the was mm. was the way forward. Mm -hmm. Whatever the the you know the the merit of that case, he wasn't speaking to sympathetic ears, and it was really odd because he didn't seem to notice, and that by the time the talk ended, it was dark. And they hadn't turned on the lights. And at the very end of the time, they turned on the lights and there were about eight people around. <laughs> it was, anyway, it was just a, a case of complete misunderstanding. But one of the conditions that we understood, I mean, it was never, I, I don't have official proof of this, but I have pretty strong, from one of the high officials in government, was that, um, was that Libya put the condition on, um, on Uganda if they were to receive its aid, they should ban the faith. Because uh, the the Muslims consider the Baha'is uh, of heretics. Heretics. Yeah. The Baha the Baha'is have been persecuted by the um, by Islam um, since the time basically of its birth in the mid eighteen um, mid nineteenth century, and uh, uh, it, it it's led to um, not only banning of the faith's activities but jailing of its uh, of its leaders. And, uh, and its so, where did this put you all? Uh, if the faith was banned, I mean, well, we, we weren't <coughs> able to we weren't able to hold official functions and meetings, but um, we met as family uh, all over. Mm -hmm. um, but we weren't able to go and hold um, open, open public proclamations or anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, nonetheless, uh, the. The, the Baha'i stayed in touch with each other mm. and held uh, held meetings, mm. but just not officially. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And stayed in close contact. Um, 
Interestingly enough, when Amin was finally overthrown, um, and this didn't take place until '79. We and so you. Were, we were there. You were still there. We were there. Yeah. So you were there when he was instituted, and you were there when he. Well, we were no. We came in after he had taken over, but before the nature of his regime became oh, clear. Present. In, okay. We were we arrived in the early months of his takeover, okay. and interestingly enough, when he took over, there was jubilation in the streets mm-hmm. because the former leader Oboti had been seen to become increasingly tyrannical and mm-hmm. and and. Um, so if only they at knew. first, yeah, right. It's, uh, <laughs> but um, so seventy nine. Uh, he was seventy nine when when uh, when the country, as it were, was liberated, mm. of, um, and then went into ten years of civil war. But but uh, on the front page of the newspaper, very large was the was the Baha'i House of Worship. Oh, really? Yeah, and saying that this was a symbol. Uh, that was had had been maintained through all these periods, and people looked towards it, and and it it was the symbol of the unity and and the and the and the, and, and the sense that um, things would be better. Mm. Um, it was interesting that even during the time that the faith was banned, Amin himself and many of his top people came to visit the house of worship. Mm. Um, we always had people there and kept it up. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. so uh, it's hard to know, uh, but it, it it had a draw, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah they, you yeah. can't right. refuse the spirit, right? Yeah. So, y- how much longer were you in Uganda after that? Well, conditions deteriorated after the overthrow of Amin. Mm. It was an occupation of the Tanzanian what was called an army, most of the army being youth who had been recruited, uh, given a uniform and a gun and sent north. Uh, So they were a pretty unruly bunch, uh, but they were the occupying group. And then uh, Uganda struggled through a whole series of governments. I was still with the UN, and the UN officially evacuated everyone uh, towards the end of 79. And, and the reason was is that, one, the head of the UNDP had been shot and killed uh, on a roadside, uh, by roadside bandits as he was driving outside of Kampala. Uh, there had been a number of kidnaps and, and, and killings. There was, the UN could no longer guarantee any security. When Amin's people left, his army, they sometimes traded uh um, support to go travel with guns. They had left arms all over the country. Those arms had gone underground, and it was a mess. Mm. There was absolutely no security in the country, and the fact that he left didn't solve anything. Actually, it just reemerged the um, prior, um, and you know, antagonisms mm. and problems. Mm. And so, the country really struggled for a long time. Mm. I went back a few times during the civil wars and. Mm-hmm. Conflicts to see if we could do edu- anything in education, <laughs> but <laughs> couldn't. Was so, um, so we uh, we traveled. We we waited for about four or five months. Well, not that long, I guess. About three months in in Nairobi, waiting to see what might happen. Uh, also, um, 
after we were evacuated. Um, we then, uh, Trish was able to go back um, into Kampala um, to see what we could salvage of our of our belongings. Mm. Our house had been looted, mm. as many others. And we, we went around to the neighbors, and they uh, told us what they had been able to rescue. Oh, now, they would have kept it, and we kept we let them keep some of the things, but some of the things meant a lot to us. Mm-hmm. Like when I was married, Trish gave me a guitar mm-hmm. as a wedding present. Mm-hmm. And uh, that guitar, you know, it just wasn't any old guitar. <laughs> and uh, we found that, minus its strings, and one of the neighbor's houses said, you know, that one means a lot. I, 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 I claimed that one back. <laughs> so... Uh, but we lost everything, actually. Mm. Uh, mm. Had a library. We lost pretty much everything. Um, in in the Baha'i faith, <laughs> every 19 years, I think, you're supposed to uh, <laughs> clear out and uh, start again. You're supposed to kind of clear out your material belongings. And and, and this uh, <coughs> this wasn't quite 19 years, but it sure did the trick. <laughs> and it was interesting because we mm. really lost everything and had to mm. start over. And we had to think about what do we really need and what, what don't we and mm. what means something. Mm. Yeah. So. But at some point, I guess you felt you, you couldn't go back after that while you were waiting those three months in Nairobi. Well, there was no... Uh, you were sort of waiting to see if you could. and Yeah, I mean, I was working with the UN, and finally the UN said, no more, yeah. we can't wait anymore, and I had nothing to go back to. I couldn't, I mean, there was no economy, there was no, uh, everything was pretty much in shambles, and so mm. we had to, we came back, actually, we came back here to Amherst. Mm. Um, stayed with friends, uh, the Rothsteins, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, our kids went into school here uh, at Mark's Meadow, well, while we were waiting to see what next, and I was still officially employed by UNESCO, um, and uh, so they were waiting to see what other assignment would pop up, and uh, the next thing that popped up was Lesotho. So let me let me take a break. So we found ourselves uh, headed to the mountain kingdom of Lesotho. Mm-hmm. Um, Lesotho. You probably don't know this. Something very special about Lesotho. It's the highest country in terms of average elevation in the world. And everything. What? What about the Himalayas? Yeah, Nepal? I was going to say. Yeah, Nepal. Right. I mean, give me yeah. a break. Sikkim, yeah. it's way up. But they all have deep valleys. Uh, Lesotho has valleys, but the country starts at 7,000 feet and goes up to about just under 13,000 and it's all mountain there's nothing else except mountain it is the mountain kingdom the uh, traditional um, culture there um, traditional actually it's a very interesting country Mm. in the sense that it was formed um, as a response to civil wars social conflict that scarred the uh, northern half of southern South Africa uh, during the second half of the 19th century. The Zulu were moving south and uh, were kind of inexorable in terms of their ability just to take over areas because they had developed a certain kind of militia that was just unstoppable mm. um, on one hand. And the uh, the Vortrekkers, the Dutch farmer warriors were moving north and as these two groups move towards each other 
they displaced villages, uh, mm. towns and villages, all through the central part of South Africa. And these people were like displaced people. They had to go somewhere. Um, there was no UN refugee <laughs> place. And they headed to the mountains as a safe, as a refuge. And uh, different groups congregated in the uh, area which is now the lowlands of uh, Lesotho, but was then, of course, the hi- is the highlands from, from the plains around, mm. from different groups. And these groups settled on um, the mesa, um, the, the flat uh, hills in the lower part of what is now Lesotho. And one in particular, um, one mesa, um, was... Uh, a, a chief emerged um, called Meshweshwe uh, and he was a most remarkable character uh, he had all the characteristics of what I would call a, a, a Baha'i leader his fundamental point was there was no way the people could survive unless they worked together as one group and although they came from different ethnicities and languages and so forth, it was really important for them to treat each other as one family. Mm. And to uh, do that, he um, actually promoted the use of one of the languages, Sesotho, and that became the national language. And today, 99% of the people in the country speak that language, Mm. which is interesting in Africa. It's one of the few countries where everybody speaks one language. Mm. Um, And Meshweshwe was... He persuaded missionaries to establish uh, stations along the Caledon River, which is the river that marked the boundary, as it were, of his area, Mm. uh, so that they would (laughs) present, um, as it were, an obstacle to the uh, Vortrekkers, the people coming north. Mm. And so Lesheshwi became the first king, uh, and a very wise man he was, able to um, have people transcend their differences in, in settling their disputes and, and really um, uh, teaching that, 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 that the unity of these peoples was essential to their survival mm. and, uh, and it, it created the nation. Mm. So that was, a, that was an interesting part of history and I've mm. always thought Meshweshwe should be one of the leaders that we study but probably nobody who's listening to this unless they've lived in Lesotho or unless you're a Masotho uh, <laughs> actually know about Meshweshwe, one of the unsung heroes and leaders of the of the world mm-hmm. um, we uh, we lived in in uh, in Lesotho for almost five years um, I had the wonderful opportunity to serve on the National Assembly in Uganda and in Lesotho. So that's the National Governing uh, Council for the Baha'is. Right, yeah. <coughs> and uh, it's, uh, it's elected every year uh, with a secret ballot, and, uh, and people elect those who they feel can serve best. And mm-hmm. so it's, uh, it, it has no... Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an assembly that is, uh, <laughs> is constituted by the will of the people. <laughs> um, but... During my time there, at the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, Israel, um, the completion of the edifice, which is the seat of the House of the Universal House of Justice, which is a elected nine-member body that is the um, authoritative body of the of the Baha'i World, that election 
took place while I was on the National Assembly. And members of the National Assembly have the great uh, honor and bounty of traveling to the World Center to do this election. Mm. And we went there just as this uh, fabulous building, you can go on the web and see this, uh, Mm. was completed. And uh, people came from um, about 130 countries um, and representing every language and ethnicity and culture in the world. It was just Mm. an amazing gathering on Mount Carmel uh, and in uh, <laughs> in uh, in the Old Testament, the uh, both Isaiah and uh, Micah uh, have this promise that the people will come from all parts mm-hmm. of the world and walk the paths of the Lord uh, on the holy mountain. And here we were walking the paths of the holy mountain. So I that just mm-hmm. as I'll say, it blew me away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that has been a defining absolutely defining event in my life to recognize mm. the vision of what the world can be mm-hmm. because it um, it was there mm. uh, every, the, 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 not just joy the exaltation we all felt in the, mm. in the gardens and, mm-hmm. and, and at this time was was wonderful mm. um, after after Lesotho um, we, we worked there uh, very happily for five years and then had an offer in a neighboring country uh, across South Africa, uh, uh, and you associate this country with the Kalahari Desert, perhaps, and it's uh, Botswana. Mm. And Botswana, again, quite different from Lesotho in the sense that most of it's a desert. Mm. But it it has a couple of interesting features. Um, One is that in the north of the country, the Angola River, which is a really major river in Africa, and African rivers are really major, <laughs> uh, finds its way south to the north of Botswana, the north of the Kalahari Desert, where it it breaks up into a delta of islands in the desert. And this is called the Okavango. And the Okavango is truly one of the natural wonders of the world, one of the biological wonders of the world. It has the greatest number of bird species in the world in one concentrated place. The The islands um, are have, have small palms and bushes and things, and many of them now have, uh, the bigger ones have a place you can stay, camps. The water is so clear that you can see 10 to 15 feet down as if you're looking through a magnifying glass to the mm. bottom. Um, and there are fish and animals. Uh, the place is just teeming with game. The the Angola River spreads out into the delta, and uh, during the flooding time, during the period of the rains, and then uh, during the dry season, uh, it contracts. And when it contracts, the animals get into more and more concentration on the islands. And so you come during the dry season there you have the highest concentration of birds and games anywhere in the world mm. uh, and you you don't have um you don't have too many in the way of lions and predators you do have some leopards but boy the antelope and the buffalo and so forth are just they're just outside your window oh my <laughs> so that our our kids uh, and we enjoyed much uh, visiting there mm. um it's wonderful mm. um i want to s- I think from Botswana, <laughs> I, I want to go t- to a different 
a different kind of place. Um, well, one thing, about, one other thing, though, about Botswana, on the teaching trips that we were able to make um, into the Kalahari, we would often stay on the pans, and the pans are depressions in the desert when it rains during the rainy season they fill up with water but they they empty with water pretty quickly but they leave salt residue behind mm. often and and around the pans you find concentrations of antelope and in particular springbok which are small small very energetic uh antelope they're only about four four feet tall mm. but they are really energetic and they when we camped on these on the pans they encircle us they, and if you shine a light they will they get quite close like about two, 20 yards 30 yards away and in a perfect circle around us and then hmm. if you come out and shine a light they back off uh, but in proportion so that the circle kind of contracts and 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 uh Expand. and expands uh, <laughs> depending on whether or not you're standing outside the tent or le- or in it and like a herd of these things will be maybe oh a hundred a hundred oh of them God. just you know and it's just uncanny and there's some kind of communication going on there they are so sensitive to your movement and and so on but the other thing out the reason you're going out to the pans is we we um we met and interacted with the um with the bush the bushmen the san people the little people and the, the san are are one of the remaining traces of what really are the original peoples of the continent of africa they once uh were the predominant group of people on the on the on the continent and there's evidence of of the San up in North Africa through Central Africa and in South Africa. Mm. Uh, they are hunter-gatherers. They live a way of life which our, our great-great ancestors lived. They are enormous. Oh, <laughs> they are very short. They're only four feet tall. Mm. Um, they have a golden skin, something very different. Not Negroid, not Asiatic, not... It's golden skin. And they are very funny i mean they they like to play jokes they and even though they now are in a uh, at the last stages of the way of life as they have known it for millennium um they are enormously playful and 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 welcoming oh my goodness you go to one of their camps and they they can't get enough of you they just mm. are so welcoming and so happy to see you and and yet they have suffered intensely because they have been moved. They no longer have um, have a way of life uh, that they can live. They, they've mm. been forced by drought and the restriction of their range to live in in small areas. Mm-hmm. But boy, they will come up to you and embrace you. <laughs> wow! I mean, and will will chatter on. And their language, of course, is is absolutely magnificent. It's a language of. Clicks and stuff. Of the yeah. clicks. Yeah. Um, some of that language has has found its way into the languages of uh, Sitswana and Susutu and um, and other languages in the area. And some of the places are one of my favorite places is called Golosing. Uh, <laughs> um, say that again. Say that again. Golosing. <laughs> it took a while. It took a lot of sand in my on my palate to be able to get that right.
<laughs> and the Kalahari offers lots of that. Mm. But they they are absolutely wonderful people. I I don't know how many people are listening here have ever seen a movie called The Gods Must yes. Be Crazy, which is done as a kind of a caricature of the of the Bushmen, but but in fact some of the values that it it shows that they have are in truth there. Uh, this intense sense of communal uh, concern in life that the gods must be crazy because a Coke bottle is thrown out of an airplane at about 20,000 feet and lands in the sands next to one of the camps of the Bushmen. And they go out and pick it up and it looks very interesting. It came out of the sky. It must have come from the gods. What is it? But the problem with this thing is it starts to cause disputes because there's only one of it. And the Bushmen cannot understand what happened because the gods have always given them more than one of something. They've always given them plenty to share. And so they think the gods must be crazy. So the movie is about returning this thing to the gods because something is wrong. Um, doesn't that tell us a lot about the way they view <laughs> material mm. uh, material goods and how mm. those are to be mutually enjoyed or something is wrong with the world. Mm. That should tell us something about ourselves. Yeah. And I can truly say in meeting these people that is not a caricature. That's the way they are. Mm. So, mm. so that, Very was, interesting. that was one of the experiences in Botswana. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Ash Hartwell, an educator and a Baha'i from Amherst, Massachusetts who spent many years in Africa. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. There's lots of fallen flat If getting good's the question The answer's very clear To get to where you're going Well, you got to persevere So try, try, try and try again Why cry when you can try again? You can help by giving yourself another chance And then, whenever it's tough to show yourself Try and try again You can't play a violin you can't play a saxophone until you learn to blow. If getting good's the question, the answer's very clear. To get to where you're going, well, you got to persevere. So try, 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 try and try again. Why cry when you can try again? You can help by giving yourself another chance. And then, whenever it's tough to show yourself, try and try again. When you have to practice to make it on the team, or when you got some homework that makes you want to scream, you're sure to find that nothing ever makes you feel as good as when you finally get it right, just like you knew you could. So try, 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 try and try again. Why cry when you can try again? You can help 
by giving yourself another chance and then whenever it's tough to show your stuff try and try again whenever it's tough to show your stuff try and try again you are listening to WXOJLP Northampton 103.3 FM your Valley Free Radio Station